As we come to chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, we come following the events that we have been looking at in chapter 1 where Hannah, a barren woman, has prayed and pleaded with God for a son, a son to whom she said if he would grant it to her, he would give her give him back to the Lord. She made a vow. And we come to the end of the first chapter and we see that she keeps this vow. After having weaned this child, Samuel is probably now three years of age. Samuel means asked or heard of the Lord. And after three years weaning this child, she comes to the tabernacle and there she hands over her little son, to Eli to work there and to be there in the temple. He is devoted to the Lord. But what we find in the heart of Hannah as she does this is not resentment, but we find her worshiping here in this hymn of praise, a prayer that she now utters to the Lord in light of this gift that God has given to her and now a gift that she turns over to the Lord. And Samuel will become a significant figure in the history of Israel at this particular time. And we see in this song quite a contrast between her prayer in the first chapter where she's full of this heaviness of soul and this bitterness of soul. She pours out her soul to God. We see in this psalm her praise. Her mourning has turned to joy, her pain to praise. Her emptiness is now expressed in this fullness that she has known. And uh, we, by God's grace, are able to listen in to this prayer. We like to eavesdrop sometimes, don't we? Well, I do. Maybe you don't. But uh, we can hear somebody conversing at the table next to us at the restaurant. Sometimes it's kind of interesting to listen in. But here, (laughs) sorry, that's confession of my own sin here. But, But here, we are able to listen in to this prayer of Hannah, we're able to eavesdrop, and we see a window into her heart. That's the way it is with all the prayers of the, of the scriptures, and we're helped by that. And here's Hannah pouring out her heart and praise to her God and uh, the good things that he has done for her. But what we find in this prayer, it's not just a prayer that we're listening to Hannah and her own personal experience. This prayer is helpful to us as well because she's speaking about things that relate to us years, centuries later. And these things are in many ways prophetic of what she says here. And we sense in her this very high and exalted view of God. That God is on the throne. That God is ruling and God is reigning. He is sovereign over his creation. And God is carrying out his purpose, his works. And he is going to raise up the anointed one, the Messiah. But he knows his people. And he is a God who is opposed to the proud. And he will humble the proud. But he will give grace and he will exalt the humble. And so... A lot of what Hannah is praying here is something that applies to us as well, and we are helped by it. Interestingly enough, her prayer will become a prayer that David will himself pull from and draw from at the end of 2 Samuel. We have Samuel, or we have in 2 Samuel 22 and 23, 
this prayer of David, and he pulls out of her prayer many of these same themes. And these really are the bookends of this one book, First and Second Samuel. It begins with praise, and it ends with praise. And we also find in the prayer of Mary, as she has given the word that she is going to bear the Christ child, we have her song of praise. And it is very similar to what we find here in Hannah's prayer. She draws from this as well as she speaks about the Lord who, who lifts up the humble and he, he brings down the low. And she is seeing in all these events that this is the God of her salvation. And so here in this poem, in this prayer, we see that God is opposed to the proud. He exalts the humble. And despite human evil, that God is at work in the, the world. There is this view that, that Hannah has of God, that he is sovereign over all things in the world. And he, as the invisible God, is carrying out his own purpose and his works. And he knows his people, even though it may seem uh, sometimes that he's far away and distant and removed. No, he is not. He is carrying out his purpose. And God will raise up for himself a king. And we see this here in this psalm. So first of all, we're going to look at it in three ways. First of all, how God has worked personally in Hannah's life. And then secondly, how God works generally in the world. And then how God works ultimately and will work ultimately at the end of the age. So first of all, how God has worked personally in Hannah's life. And this is how she begins, my heart rejoices. So here is her own personal testimony at this time where she has given over her son. She has been blessed to have this son, and her heart is full. Even though there's mixed emotions, I am sure, because she's going to go back to Ramah, and she's not going to be having this son that she has nursed for three or four years. But her heart is full as she thinks about her God and what he has done for her And so here is her response to God's kindness in her life. And so we see her heart rejoices in Yahweh. My heart rejoices in the Lord or in Yahweh. Here is a heart that is full and rejoicing. And she talks about that at the end of this verse, because I rejoice in your salvation. I I rejoice in your deliverance. And I think here more specifically, she's speaking about this deliverance that she she has been brought out of her barrenness that God has delivered her and he he has blessed her with a son she's been delivered from this barrenness and and she is grateful to God and she gives praise to him and maybe more than that she recognizes that it is God who is her savior her redeemer but here is a heart that is full Matthew Henry said that praise is our rent Our tribute, we are unjust if we do not pay it. We live in this world. God feeds us, clothes us, cares for us, gives us the very breath that we breathe, and we ought to pay our rent. And what is that rent? We are to give praise to him. Are we like Hannah in this way? Has our heart been full this week of giving praise to God, giving thanks to God for his mercies, for his kindness, his his undeserved mercies to us because of Christ. We are told by Paul that we are to give thanks in all things, all the time. We are to be a thankful people. 
And so are we paying the rent? David says to himself, rejoice and give thanks to the Lord. Oh, my soul, give thanks to him. Remember his blessings. So her heart is rejoicing in Yahweh. And then she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, horn here, some of the translations have the word strength, but it is literally the Hebrew word for horn. It's not a band instrument. It's not what I played when I was in the band. But this horn is, uh, uh, is the ram's horn or the ox's horn. And it's used in scripture to, to be a symbol of strength. You think about those animals, those horns would be used in battle. And there was a sign of strength, of power. Uh, we even have the Dodge Ram, which is a picture of, of a strong pickup truck, I guess. But here is this horn. And she says, the Lord is, uh, my horn is exalted in the Lord, or, or my strength has been, exo- ex- uh, has been exalted in the Lord. God has imparted to me power and strength. I was barren. I, I was weak. I was infertile. And God has exalted my horn. And he has blessed me. And he has given me a son. And through all of this, God has strengthened me. God has helped me. God has sustained me. Psalm 68, verse 35 says this, The Lord, the God of Israel, is he who gives strength and power to his people. He gives strength and he gives power to his people. Remember Paul in Philippians 4 says that that I can do all things through Christ who what? He strengthens me. And God calls us sometimes to go through some very hard and difficult things. But here we're reminded that God exalts the horn of his people. He gives to them a strength that is not their own. It is a strength that comes from God himself. He gives strength and he gives power to his people. Psalm 75.10 says, All the horns of the wicked, they're going to be cut off. We think of the wicked and the proud and the arrogant. Their horn, their strength is going to be cut off. But it goes on to say, But the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. And this is what God does for his people. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul came to know this. He asked of the Lord, remove from me this thorn in the flesh. And three times he begged the Lord, but the Lord said, no, I want you to know, I want you to know, Paul, that my grace is sufficient for you. And I want you to know that my power is perfected in your weakness. We need to come to know that, don't we, more and more, that when we come to an end of ourself, it is there that God says, I want to show myself strong in your life. May we be a people who are ever fleeing to Christ to find the strength that he promises to give to us. And then she says, I smile at my enemies. I smile at my enemies. This Hebrew word is It's interpreted in different ways or translated in different ways, but it's a word that means to enlarge the mouth. And the the, the New King James takes it in a sense of a smile. Other translations have the word boast or deride or to speak boldly. I speak boldly at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. 
And that may seem a little strange. James Hamilton said this, by exalting in the Lord, which is what Hannah is doing here. I'm I'm exalting in the Lord. And as she does that, he says, I am refuting and deriding what others trust in, which is in themselves and their own strength and their own power and capacity. And so here she knows what it is for God to give strength to her and those who are proud and arrogant, that, that they will be brought low. And we can't help but think that as Hannah is writing this, thinking of this, she, she's thinking of this other woman, Panina, who has been so harsh with her and spoken so um, condescendingly to her to humiliate her. And here is Hannah saying that the Lord has exalted me and given me strength and God has blessed me, and uh, I'm able to smile at my enemies for what God has done. And it's not just Panina, but anyone who is self-confident, anyone who's trusting in their own power, their own abilities. I'm able to smile at my enemies. And then we see praise for who God is. As we look at this life of Hannah, she is a well-taught woman. This woman from the hills of Ephraim, she has this grand and glorious view and understanding of who her God is. And I think we see in chapter 1, she struggled with this emotionally somewhat, but now her emotions are catching up to what she knows is true about her God. And that's true for us, isn't it? We often so know so much more about God, but we're not really living that out emotionally sometimes uh, But here, her emotions are catching up with what she knows is true about her God. And notice, she says that there is no one who is holy like the Lord. He is holy. He's set apart morally. He's absolutely pure and holy. But he's also distinct. He's the creator, everything else creation. He alone is God. He alone is set apart. And this comes out in the next phrase. There is none besides you. You are alone. There is only one true and living God. All those who worship as divine beings, Hannah says, well, there is only one. There's only one. All the pagans around, they, they, they worship their gods. But there is only one true and living God. And it is you, Yahweh. And there is no one like you. We read these words of the Lord himself in Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. And here is this testimony of Hannah. Lord, you alone are the true and the living God, the creator, the maker of all things. Besides you, there is no one else. So he is the sovereign God. He rules and reigns. He's all-powerful and then she says, verse 2, no one, uh, verse, uh, the end of verse 2, nor is there any rock like our God. There is no rock that is like our God. We see this throughout the scripture. Here she is probably pulling from Deuteronomy 32, where Moses in his psalm of praise speaks of God as being the rock of his people. We think of a rock as something that is strong, that is sure, that is immovable. And this is the God of his people. 
that he is a rock. We find this language, especially in the Psalms, that the Lord is the rock of his people, a place of refuge, a place of stability in a fallen, broken world where we often are broken. Here's the rock upon which we stand. It is our God. Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I had a quote in the bulletin last week. If you read it from Spurgeon, He said, I thank God or I bless God for the wave that cast me onto the rock of ages. Thank God that he has done that through tribulations, through difficulties, whatever it is that it has cast me upon the rock of ages. The name of the Lord our God is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and they are safe. And Hannah has this Great assurance that God is this rock. And then in a a rebuke to scornful uh, mockers in verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge. God knows all things. Here he is the omniscient God who knows all things. This is Yahweh. And by him, actions are weighed. He is a God of justice. Jesus said that every idle word that a man speaks, he will give account for in the day of judgment. He weighs weighs the actions of men, the motives of men. And he is a God of justice who will one day judge So the arrogant and the wicked should realize that God sees, God knows all things, and he knows how to respond to them, and he will ultimately do that. And what a warning that is given. You remember Belshazzar, Belteshazzar, and and Daniel. Remember he was found, he was weighed in the balances, and he was found wanting. He's found wanting, and it is God who sees the heart, who knows, and a God who will judge. But this God that Hannah knows, he is Yahweh. He is the God of all knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. As we look at this prayer of Hannah, we see in her what Jeremiah 9, 23 says. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and he knows me that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Hannah reminds us we have a great God in whom we can trust. And we ought to boast in our knowledge of knowing him above anything else. By his grace, he has enabled us to know him. And this is a place of safety for the people of God. He is our rock. So where did, where did this obscure woman 
from the hills of Ephraim come to have such deep knowledge of God. Well, back in chapter 1, we saw that her husband, Elkanah, was very faithful year by year to go up to the sanctuary of the Lord to bring the offerings that God had asked of him. We find in this man, who's just kind of a side part of this story, but we see one who, in a time of great unbelief, apostasy, hardness of heart, we find here a family, a man, Elkanah and his wife, who are seeking to faithfully follow the Lord. We find fidelity. We know that God, throughout all the Old Testament, he always had a remnant, a remnant of people. And we find this, I think, in Elkanah. And he was faithful to take Hannah and his family, to take them to worship the Lord. And I think God has blessed their endeavor to be faithful to the Lord in this time of great uh, barrenness other, uh, spiritually in the lives of so many others. God always has his 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And I think we see as we think of Hannah, she has heard the things concerning the great works of God and what he has done in the past for his people. And she, is, she has gone to worship him. She has this increased knowledge of her God. So Hannah is elated as she thinks of the particular salvation that has come to her. But what we see in this next section is that her view widens out now. It expands from her particular situation, the particular things that God had done for her, and now looks at God's dealings with the world generally. That this God who has dealt in her life in a specific way is also at work in the world and carrying out various purposes of his. And he is sovereign over this world. So Hannah was barren. She was mocked. She was scorned. But God reversed things in the life of Hannah. He changed the situation. He exalted her. And so he heard her prayer, he stooped to the brokenhearted, and he raised her up. And what Yahweh has done for Hannah simply reflects the tendencies of his way in the world that we live in, in her day and in our day as well. So God is the sovereign God who changes circumstances. He is the God who reverses things. In our world, and we sense here in these verses 4 to 8, these reversals that we often see in our world, reversals where God often reverses human conditions. He brings down the high and the mighty, and he also often lifts up and exalts the lowly. And again, we, we see in Hannah this high view of God's sovereignty and reversing these various things. So we see these in, in these verses here, that he raises up the humble, the weak and the despised, but he brings low his enemies, the proud and the arrogant. And so this theme of God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Notice verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken, and those who stumble are girded with strength. Here contrast. The mighty, they are brought low, they are broken. Maybe in the mind 
of Hannah is the psalm that we find in Exodus 15 of Miriam and Moses as they speak about how God has triumphed gloriously over the horse and the rider, the chariot that God has brought to an end as they are drowned in the Red Sea. He's the one that lifts up, but he is also the one that brings down. He breaks the bow of the mighty. Verse 5, he says, those who were full have hired themselves out for for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. God has done this. He has humbled Panina, and he has raised up, and this barren woman, she is born, and she has given birth. And then in verse 6, the Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. We're going to see this as we go through the book of 1 Samuel. The Lord kills and the Lord is the one who makes alive. A woman who is barren is now given birth. This God who brings down the haughty and the proud also is the one who raises up the humble and the lowly. He He can take a despised and rejected man of sorrows slain on a cross and bring him back to life on the third day. He can take the spiritually dead sinner and bring forth a new creation. This is the God who is sovereign, who can reverse various circumstances in in life. And verse 7, he is one who makes poor and he makes rich. And then there in verse, in that same verse, he is the one, he is the one who brings low and he lifts high. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. What a beautiful picture there of what God has done for helpless, needy, broken sinners. He raises them up. He raises them up and makes them to inherit the throne of glory. Isn't that what he has done for us? He has seated us together with Christ in the heavenly places. We've been going through the Beatitudes on Wednesday night. I would encourage you to come and join us. But we see these very principles being worked out in those Beatitudes where Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are humble, those who are poor, who see they have nothing to contribute before God. They are sinners. And, and they're poor in spirit. And they're humble before God, broken before God. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who know what it is to mourn. Their mourning is toward God. They know what it is to mourn for their very sin. And they know what it is to be comforted. There is comfort that comes to them. And blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the world. Blessed are those who hunger and they thirst. They're going to be filled. They hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they're going to be filled. And we see these reversals 
even as we see here in this passage of scripture. And then notice verse eight or verse at the end of verse eight, that he, um, this God, uh, he will make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. This God that Hannah has been praying to, she knows that he's one who upholds all things all things by the power of his word. He upholds the earth. He is able to carry these things out. He is the sovereign God whose will will not be frustrated, will not be thwarted. And as we look at this prayer of Hannah and this section in this prayer, this is kind of a a foretaste, or this is what we see in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to see God doing these very things. We're going to see God lifting up a Hannah and lifting up the horn and giving strength to her. We're going to see Eli's sons who are proud and arrogant and defiant against the Lord. They're going to be brought low. Judgment is going to come upon them. But there is this young little Samuel serving there in the temple that God is going to raise up this little boy to become a key figure in history at this particular time. There is Saul, a man who stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He has become a proud man as he has been anointed king and defies the very word of God. And he is going to be brought low. And we have others. There is the great giant, the Philistine, Goliath. And what happens to this, what happens to this man? Well, God raises up a little shepherd boy and this Goliath is brought down. His life is taken. And we see the power of God in his people. And then there's Nabal, one who despised God's anointed David and spoke harshly against him. And it says that his, he had a heart attack and he became like stone. God raises up and God brings down. And this is the way God works. This is something that we read about in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He knew this. He was a proud, arrogant king. God humbled that man, made him as a wild beast out in the pasture, from the palace to the pasture. But then he restored to him his place, his position. And we have from the lips of this king of Babylon some of the most amazing words that he knows that God is sovereign. There's no one who can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? And Nebuchadnezzar himself says this, Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and exalt the king of heaven for all that he does is right and just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Wouldn't you love to hear that from one of our presidents? This came from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar. I think we're going to see him in heaven just based upon these words that God has brought about a transformation in his heart. I hope that's the case anyway. But we see that God is opposed to the proud, He gives strength to the humble. And so as we look at this account, this is what God is doing in our world as well. Now, we may look at the world and we say, well, I don't see this happening all the time. I know we have women that are barren and they have never had children. This is true. This is not always what God does for. It was, Hannah's not a model for us, for every barren woman. And all of these things do not always pan out maybe in a specific way. 
But this is true, that God is always opposed to the proud, and he will always give grace to the humble, and he will do them good. And we see this ultimately one day is going to come to pass. And we see this in the latter verses, verses 9 and 10, that God will work ultimately in the last day. Hannah represented Israel and those that were barren and forlorn, uh, forlorn in Israel. Her salvation was designed to encourage all in Israel to hope for a greater deliverance. And we see this in these closing verses. He will guard the feet, verse 9, he will guard the feet of his saints. Aren't you thankful for that? He knows his sheep. He's going to keep his sheep. He guards the feet of the saints. But the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So be mindful of this. Though we do not always see the proud humbled in this life, there is coming a day in which they will be in the day of judgment. Asaph struggled with this in Psalm 73. My foot almost slipped. I saw the prosperity of the wicked and they're prospering and, and he's a godly man and he's suffering and he can't understand all of this until he comes to the sanctuary of the Lord. They have been put in a slippery place and when God awakes, as it were, he will judge, he will judge and he will exalt his people. And we see this in these closing verses. But notice the end there of verse 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, how does Hannah know about a king that is coming? Because there's no monarchy here. Well, Abraham was told he would have from his loins, there would be kings that would come from him. And there will be one special king who will come. And he will be the anointed one, the anointed. This is a term. This is the first time in the Bible where we find this term, the anointed. And it is a term that refers to Messiah, the anointed one, one set apart by God, one upon whom oil was poured. And this is God's servant. And he has been set apart unto the Lord in a special way. It is a reference to the coming of the Messiah himself. Andrew was able to say to his brother Peter, I just met someone. His name is Jesus. And is this not, is this not the Messiah? Which it says being translated means that he is the Christ. He is the Christ who will bring forth these blessings promised to the nations. He is the one who will bring this to pass. And what we'll see in Samuel, God raises up his anointed. He'll raise up a king, but it's just a preview of things that are to come with the Lord's own anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the redeemer and savior of his people. And it is he who will guard his people it is he who will judge his enemies. And this is the king that we have. Why do we need a king? 
Well, we need a king to subdue us unto himself, to rule over us in righteousness. Because left to ourselves, we're prone to wonder. But we need a king who will rule over us and who will bring our hearts in line with his, care for us, and a king who will judge all of his and all of our enemies one day. And this is who we have in our King Jesus. And we thank God for such a Redeemer, Savior. He's given to us. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you today.